faithless electors for years have raised the possibility of chaos uh, in our elections, especially to pick the presidency. You know, if that was the only chaos we had to look forward to this year, I'd be fine with it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Your mileage may vary. Thank you very much for joining us today. The great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com will be joining us momentarily here. Uh, to discuss a couple of important opinions handed down from the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday... Though while one of them on faithless electors, as you heard uh, mentioned at the uh, open quote there uh, in the Electoral College, uh, that received most of the notice. But the other opinion written by Justice Brett Kavanaugh of all justices on robocalls of all things is the one that is really good news, I think, and not because of its finding regarding robocalls, but because... It could signal that the Supreme Court is prepared to dump the challenge by Texas and other GOP-controlled states, along with the White House, all hoping to kill the entire Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, right in the middle of the worst global pandemic we have seen in more than 100 years. Well, I did not have that on my bingo card. No, <laughs> well... To have robocalls be a thing that would help uh, health care across America. Obamacare. Yeah, well, stand by. We'll see if I'm right about that. Hopefully that's good news. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. I need to confirm it, of course, with Mark, but uh, there has also been a bunch of... Really troubling decisions handed down, not just by the U.S. Supreme Court, but by a number of lower federal courts over the past two weeks regarding elections and voting. And what these rulings say collectively is not encouraging when it comes to our critical presidential election in less than four months time. But hey stick around for the good news part of that conversation i guess maybe there's <laughs> yeah. that 
Uh, also, you've got some good news in a Green News report a little bit later. Yes, I do. Regarding pipelines and, yes, even the U.S. Supreme Court. Go figure. Anyway, uh, beyond that, here is Dr. Ashish Jha. He's the director of Harvard's Global Health Institute. On, on uh, Rachel Maddow's show last night discussing the dire situation this country is now in regarding the coronavirus, which is exploding all over the country. After a bunch of states reopened for business far too early, leading to now, I was going to say nearly three million infections. But just before airtime, I got a notice from Reuters. We are now over three million infections in the U.S., more than 130,000 deaths in the U.S. so far and record infections and hospitalizations in the U.S. every single day over the past month. Here's Dr. Ashish Jha talking about the pickle that we are now in. We are in a very difficult time. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And we are, I think, at an inflection point. Um, if we begin to get our act together, and I believe we still can, um, we can turn this thing around. But if we don't act in the upcoming days and weeks, um, we're signing off on all of the fall and winter in terms of kids not being able to go back to school, uh, a horrible economy, and of course, hundreds of thousands of Americans dead. And this is not a decision we have to make in four or eight weeks. We've got to make a decision in the upcoming couple of weeks uh, to really turn this around. Now, there are states in America that are doing very well, probably about a dozen of them. Uh, so we know we can do this. But the problem is that about 35, 38 states are not doing very well. And, you know, I, I think what we need is at least uh, state level leadership. Ideally, we'd have federal leadership. But I think at this point, uh, that seems like maybe a bridge too far. Yes, it does seem a bridge too far. But maybe state leadership? Well, one of those states that is not doing very well is the great state of Florida. And yet, Florida's education commissioner said on Monday that all public schools must reopen in the state to students in person when the academic year begins next month even as cases of the coronavirus continue to surge in his state. Now, you heard Dr. Jha say in the next couple of weeks, we have to make the right decisions or else things are going to get very bad. Well, school starts in Florida next month, and the education commissioner has now said all schools, all public schools must reopen five days a week. In the emergency order, Commissioner Richard Corcoran called schools, quote, not just the site of academic learning, but added that their reopening was critical to, quote, a return to Florida hitting its full economic stride. Wow. Sacrificing the kids for the economy. Nice. And their teachers, by the way. Exactly. And those teachers' families and the kids' parents and all of them. Corcoran's order, which applies to the fall semester, requires schools to open at least five days per week for all students subject to guidance from public health officials. It comes as coronavirus cases in Florida top 206,000. And the daily number of new cases has now reached record highs. Yes, higher than it was in New York City at its peak just a few months ago. The mandate shocked Florida educators, including Amy Spies, a fourth grade teacher in Daytona Beach, whose small classroom, according to NBC, cannot accommodate the recommended six feet of space between each of her 22 students. She says, I can think of no other industry forcing an entire workforce into such an unsafe environment, she said, adding that she and other teachers were in, quote, utter disbelief. It is physically impossible, she said 
to meet CDC social distancing requirements if schools are at full capacity. Last month, Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican, recommended all Florida schools reopen at full capacity, arguing if they did not, parents would not be able to return to work. Well, we'd hate to see that happen. But the governor's recommendations did not go as far as Corcoran's order now does. The sweeping mandate comes amid a growing push to send students back to school this fall. After the pandemic shuttered most schools across the country in the spring, on Monday, Donald Trump tweeted, quote, in all caps, so you know he means it, schools must open in the fall, with three exclamation points. His education secretary, Betsy DeVos, retweeted, his tweet and calling it absolutely right, adding learning must continue for all students. American education must be fully open and fully operational this fall. Dan Dominic, however, the executive director of the School Superintendents Association, called the Florida order concerning. He said we've always been a, propo a proponent of schools opening, but that they do so in a safe manner, he said. Our concern is that any mandate to just open schools and totally disregard the guidelines that have been promoted by the CDC and all of the health specialists, including social spacing and wearing the wearing of face masks and just say open as business as usual, is a total disregard for the safety and welfare of students and staff who are going to be in that facility. Of course, he is right. The president, on the other hand, does not care. On Tuesday, in an event at the White House, Trump expressed his desire to reopen schools in the fall during the event held amid surging cases of the coronavirus across the country. He first praised Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for doing a, quote, terrific job by ordering schools to reopen in the fall. He added that his administration hopes that most schools in the country will open back up and that he hopes local officials won't keep schools shuttered, quote, for political reasons. Political reasons? You mean because people will die by the tens of thousands? That is now a political reason for you, Mr. President? He uh, seemingly agreed with the sentiments of Florida's education commissioner during the event, arguing that the reopening of schools is, quote, going to be good for them politically, unquote. And the White House plans to pressure governors into reopening schools amid the pandemic. Trump said, so they keep the schools closed? No way. So we are very much going to put pressure on governors and everybody else to open the schools, to get them open. And it's very important. He reiterated, quote, it's very important for our country for schools to be open. So we are going to be putting a lot of pressure on opening schools in the fall, he said. Yesterday, we learned that ICE is planning to deport foreign exchange students if their schools do not open for in-person classes this year. That, even though health experts all say, do not do this. But yes, threatening to have ICE round up and deport foreign exchange students, that's one way that this horrifically immoral administration is planning to, quote, put pressure on schools to open this fall. 
If this administration is willing to force people to face potential death by going to school each day, children and school teachers, how do you suppose Trump's own appointed federal judges are going to feel about making it easier for voters to avoid potential infection and death when they have to go vote in person at the polls on November 3rd? If they don't care about children's and children and teachers, do you really think they're going to care about voters at this point? The signs that we have seen from those federal judges uh, appointed by Donald Trump over the past week or two have been very not good, very troubling. But let me start with the less troubling aspects here, and then we'll just go downhill from there. Even though we're now in July, the U.S. Supreme Court is still releasing opinions for this past year's session because work was delayed in spring because of the coronavirus. I believe it's the first time in about 25 years that they've released opinions in July, but so it goes in the time of coronavirus. There have been a number of surprises so far in this year's opinions, with Chief Justice John Roberts citing a number of times the court's Democratic appointees on banning workplace discrimination against LGBTQ people, on blocking the Trump administration's attempt to overturn Barack Obama's DACA protections from deportation for hundreds of thousands of immigrants who came here as children, and uh, blocking an extremist restriction on abortion in Louisiana. But as we discussed last week with Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, Roberts is no liberal squish, but he has surprised court watchers with some of his opinions in several of these matters so far this year. And he has confounded some right wingers who thought that the stolen Republican majority on the Supreme Court would now fall in line on one matter after another. They still may, but not necessarily so far anyway. So one of the cases on which they released an opinion on Monday was unanimous. If that sort of thing happens anymore, apparently it does. And it was in a much awaited case on faithless electors, whether those selected to cast a vote in the Electoral College are required to vote as their state's popular vote mandates them to do. Now, you may recall the movement from 2016, wherein a number of electors had decided they either did not want to vote for Donald Trump or uh, Hillary Clinton electors who were hoping to convince some of those Trump electors not to vote for him by they themselves voting for someone else uh, and on the basis that Donald Trump was unfit for office. Turns out he was. But I digress. We interviewed one of those electors at the time, Michael Baca from Colorado, who, uh, though Colorado's popular vote was for Hillary Clinton, he said he planned to vote instead for a consensus Republican in hopes of convincing Trump voters to do the same. Here's a bit of his explanation for his plans at the time from the broadcast on December 14, 2016. One other thing I would like to note on these, these ballots, I'm being told that they're pre-printed with Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine's name on there. If they're pre-printed, why do we have individual voices going to vote? Why not just have the governor sign off? Why? What is the need for us if you're going to place the name in our mouths before we get a chance to exercise our rights? I still do fully intend to, and I have made no secret of this, uh -huh. that I'm going to be voting for a consensus Republican candidate and the Secretary of State on December 9th still chose to certify me. So I, I don't see how they're going to have grounds to remove me um, as long as I vote, as long as I fulfill my duty to vote. 
what I believe that it is unconstitutional if I refuse to act. I will act, but I will not be voting for Hillary Clinton nor Timothy Kane. And I believe in doing so, this is putting my country above my party because Donald Trump is a clear and present danger to our republic. That was Michael Baca from Colorado, an elector in 2016 uh, who was supposed to vote for Hillary Clinton, but said that he was not going to in hopes of uh, convincing Trump electors in other states to also change their votes. Well, they did find grounds to remove Michael Baca before he got to cast his vote. He never got a chance to cast it. He was removed as an elector by the state and replaced with someone who was willing to vote for Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College. He challenged that removal all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, along with another similar case out of Washington state, was decided in a unanimous verdict by the Supremes on Monday. Here to discuss that case and a couple of others that I think are actually even more important uh, over this past week is once again one of our favorite Supreme Court correspondents, Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the law, the court system, the Supremes, election law and LGBTQ issues and much more for Slate.com. Oh, Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Happy to be back in this never-ending SCOTUS term. Just so much fun to be here in July still talking about the Supreme Court. Well, you know, you people who cover the Supreme Court, you and the Supreme Court justices are just, you know, if you don't get out by the end of June so you can have a three-month <laughs> summer break that none of the rest of us get, you just whine and whine and whine about it, don't you? It's true. They always say school children and Supreme Court justices are the only ones who get a summer break. So I am happy <laughs> to be riding that train. All right. And I'm happy that uh, I'm on that train with you. All right, Mark, before we get to this faithless electors business, there was actually another case that came out of the uh, uh, Supreme Court on Monday that did not get a lot of attention, but I think that it should. And maybe you can tell me if I'm right here. It has to do with robocalls and whether the Supreme Court would allow this exception that was put into this rule that bans robocalls to cell phones. This exception was for the federal government. They're allowed, at least according to this exception, they were allowed to make robocalls to cell phones. No one else was. So political folks and uh, uh, advertisers and so forth had sued, said that that was unlawful and uh, unconstitutional, that only the federal government could uh, make these robocalls. And it looks like uh, Justice Kavanaugh, in his uh, opinion, agreed that it was unconstitutional to have this exception for the federal government and that that must be struck down. But the rest of the law banning uh, robocalls to cell phones could stand. Do I understand that much of the opinion so far? You are absolutely correct. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled by a six to three vote, basically the conservatives plus Justice Sotomayor, that by creating this exception that allowed uh, only robocalls to cell phones for government debt collectors, that Congress had uh, basically censored all these other forms of speech. And so uh, basically this exception had to fall because either all speech is treated equally or basically there's a big mm -hmm. First Amendment problem. Now, most of the people uh, that I heard reporting on this is sort of reported it that way. And ha ha, the federal government doesn't get to make robocalls. Uh, and that's fine. But 
this seems to be very important because Kavanaugh here is saying that you can take out part of a law, find it unconstitutional, but the rest of the law can stand. That seems to be very important, not for a case this year, but for one coming up next year in the Supreme Court, correct? Yes, that's absolutely right. This case has so many tea leaves for the current challenge to the Affordable Care Act, uh, the effort by a bunch of Republican states to uh, basically convince the Supreme Court that the individual mandate is now unconstitutional, and as a result, the entirety of Obamacare, from Medicaid expansion to the exchanges to pre-existing conditions, all of it has to fall. Uh, That case and this case may not sound very similar, but as you just indicated, they are really quite connected, and this decision is going to be poured over by attorneys to try (laughs) to figure out what it means for the ACA challenge. Yeah, Kavanaugh actually says constitutional litigation is not a game of gotcha against Congress where litigants can ride a discreet constitutional flaw in a statute to take down the whole otherwise constitutional statute. I mean, it seems like he could not be writing more directly that he does not intend to strike down Obamacare based on one uh, constitutional flaw in one part of that otherwise huge bill. I think that's right, and I also think it's really important to note that seven justices agreed with him on that particular point. Only Thomas and Gorsuch disagreed, and they have this kind of wacky theory about this whole issue that we don't really need to get into. Really, the question is, what's Kavanaugh going to do? What's Roberts going to do? And I think you're right on the money. Kavanaugh said, when we see a defect in a law... Uh, we do everything we can to save as much of the law as we can because mm-hmm. we are not a super legislature and we don't want to rewrite this or basically find a single little flaw and use it to destroy all of Congress's work. And of course, that's exactly what this ACA challenge is aiming to do. This is an effort to render the individual mandate unconstitutional, which I think is really stupid, but it doesn't even <laughs> matter because the mandate isn't doing anything right now. Congress zeroed out the penalty. If you don't buy health insurance, you don't pay a tax. You don't pay a penalty. So the big question isn't really whether the mandate is unlawful. It's whether, if it is unlawful, the entire law has to fall. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely agree. You could copy and paste what Kavanaugh wrote in this opinion and just change a bunch of words to Affordable Care Act, an individual mandate, and it it would essentially be the ACA decision, or at least what I hope the ACA decision says. Now, he knows, I mean, he's certainly aware of this, Kavanaugh and the Others are aware of this. They know that this uh, ACA case is coming before them, I guess, in the next session now. So when they write something like this, uh, right, it's it's not an accident. It's not something that he can go back and say, oh, I wasn't talking about uh, Obamacare. I was talking about something completely different. They know what they're writing when they uh, have a, a finding like this uh, and what effect it will have on future cases. No. Oh, absolutely. The justices are always looking ahead just a little ways down the road Mm -hmm. whenever they're writing an opinion, and especially when they've already agreed to hear cases, uh, which they have. They've filled up the docket for next term in part. One of the cases will be this big Obamacare challenge, Mm -hmm. and there's just no way Kavanaugh wasn't thinking about the ACA issue when he was writing this, and there's no way that the six other justices who agreed with him on this point didn't have the ACA issue in mind. So this is really good news for people who think that ACA case is ridiculous, as we all should. It suggests that maybe Kavanaugh isn't 
so hackish that he's going to embrace this absurd theory and use it to tear down uh, an entire federal law. Well, I don't want to misunderestimate Kavanaugh to uh, come up with some sort of uh, hypocrisy uh, when this uh, ruling comes out, but... Now I think it's a year away. We've got enough bad news right now. I'm going to go with this and say this is good news. And you absolutely should. I, I was I was cheering yeah. when I read it. Yeah. I thought yes. This is a this is foreshadowing yeah. something really good that's going to happen next year. Yeah, I think it's quite huge, and it did not get a lot of attention that way. So I'm glad we. I, that's why I wanted to sort of put it right up front and and highlight that. All right, let's get back to this uh, faithless electors business. I mentioned uh, you heard uh, we interviewed uh, Michael Baca, who was one of the plaintiffs in that case. I mentioned that it was a unanimous opinion, but I didn't say which way it went. So I'll <laughs> let I'll let you do that, Mark. Yeah, so a, a very straightforward opinion that I think reached the absolute right results. The Supreme Court unanimously said, look, of course states can hold a popular vote for president, and of course states can force their electors to cast their votes in the Electoral College for the winner of the statewide vote. So states have really broad discretion over how they appoint these electors uh, under the Constitution. And in the beginning of this nation, uh, a lot of state legislatures just plucked the electors and sent them to uh, the Electoral College and said, we like you guys, so we're going to have you go vote. But we haven't done that in this country for more than 100 years. Everybody knows how presidential elections work in this country. It's not perfect, and the whole Electoral College thing is terrible. But at a bare minimum, we have to be able to tell the electors of each state that they have to follow the popular will, that they have to enforce the popular vote. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court said, and it seemed like it was a very easy case for them. Uh, because even though Michael Baca did frame this, I think, in a, in a very poignant way, mm-hmm. you know, he was trying to act like an independent, wise man mm-hmm. who could follow his own counsel. The truth is that when he voted against Hillary Clinton, he was disenfranchising Coloradans. He was telling many, many Coloradans who voted for Hillary Clinton, uh, who said, we want the electors to vote for Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College, he was telling them, no, I'm going to override your decision, and I am going to vote for someone else who I choose. And that's not very democratic. And more importantly, it's certainly not compelled by the Constitution. So I viewed this as an attempt to kind of blow up the Electoral College altogether. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the Supreme Court said, you know what, we're going to pass this time. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Well, what if there was somebody, I mean, and arguably Donald Trump was not fit for office, but what if there was somebody who was even clearer not fit for office between the time of Election Day and the time that the Electoral College uh, voted? Is there, should there be no recourse? Is that not what the Electoral College is for? That was the case that Michael Baca and some of the others, the Hamilton electors, as they call themselves, had made at the time. In fact, uh, Hamilton said, and I, I, I think uh, Elena Kagan, in her opinion, noted this. He said that electors should be independent men most capable of analyzing the qualities needed for the office, implying that they would exercise their own personal choices. If that's what Hamilton wanted, why are we suddenly uh, changing that a couple of hundred years later? Well, first of all, uh, the, the opinion does say that if the presidential, uh, president-elect 
dies mm-hmm. in between the vote and the inauguration or the vote and the electoral college convening, that none of this applies. You know, all bets are off if the, if the president-elect dies. But, but I think Kagan really responds to the point you just made by saying, look, uh, Hamilton believed various things about the Constitution, and some of them were shared by his fellow framers, but some of them were not. And even though Hamilton and John Jay and a few others wanted the electors to be independent, um, it seems that many other people at the, at the Constitutional Convention were not really interested in having independent, wise men cast their votes however they wanted. In fact, a lot of them weren't really thinking through what this would mean. The Electoral College had to be modified by constitutional amendment uh, right after the 1800 election. It only operated for a few years before the framers realized, oh, we kind of messed this up. <laughs> and so I think Kagan makes a really good point that you can't take the idle thoughts of Alexander Hamilton and prioritize them over the actual text of the Constitution. And what the text of the Constitution says is that this is for states to decide. And just to be clear, this opinion leaves open the possibility that states could revert back to the original method of just having state legislatures pick their electors Mm -hmm. and plucking them out of the public. And maybe a state could say, well, we're going to let our electors vote however they want. That's fine, but that's a kind of rule that the people themselves need to enact through their legislatures. It's not a rule that the Supreme Court should impose on all 50 states. So you're, so you're saying, and I guess Kagan is agreeing, that if a state wanted to select, uh, to choose electors that would vote against the popular vote of the state, that they could do that if they wanted to? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question about it, at least under this opinion and under precedent, that states could revert back to the old method of picking people that they thought were smart and wise and sending them to the Electoral College to do their best. So what is the um, po- what's the point of having the Electoral College then at that point? Why do we go through this formality, send a guy like Michael Baca up to vote a certain way when we know the state has already voted, uh, in, in that case for Hillary Clinton, the uh, Electoral College votes of the state should just go to Hillary Clinton in that case, rather than this kabuki theater of casting a vote, no? Right. There, there absolutely is no point to the Electoral College today. <laughs> and in fact, there hasn't been for more than 100 years. The way that we use the Electoral College is nonsensical because of what you just described. Electors are not wise men. They're just mostly party loyalists who get this as a kind of favor. Um, these are not people you would want choosing the leader of the free world. Um, these are mostly just folks who are kind of obscure, who think it would be fun to have this on their resume. No offense to Michael Baca. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that this, the country, uh, the United States, should have revisited the Electoral College again after states started holding popular votes and just said, this isn't working at all, so why don't we just scrap it? Mm. But for whatever reason, we never got around to doing that. And so we are stuck with a terrible, clunky system that, that I totally agree should be abolished. I would never defend the Electoral College, ever. I think it's an awful, rotten concept. However, it is not for the Supreme Court to abolish it. It has to be abolished by constitutional amendment. This was a kind of backdoor way to make it so unwieldy and chaotic that people just decided, oh, we have to abolish the Electoral College. But I don't think that we should be chaos agents here. I think we need to make this a real, like, legal 
leading principle Mm -hmm. of at least one party, perhaps the Democratic Party, and stop shrinking from the fact that this entire system has to be put to bed for good because it is against the popular will. And I will note that uh, in your coverage at Slate, Mark Joseph Stern, uh, you, you talked about the idea that, well, at least in this case, we will avoid this bit of chaos. Uh, potentially in 2020. A lot of other chaos lies ahead, and I'm going to get to some of those uh, curious uh, rulings from uh, the Supreme Court and a number of courts in a second regarding the 2020 election. But just to, uh, to close out this faithless electors business for a quick sec, 32 states and uh, District of Columbia require electors to vote along with the popular vote, as I understand it. Does that mean uh, under Kagan's uh, ruling that the uh, electors in the, what, other uh, 18 states could, in fact, vote for someone other than uh, who the popular vote has mandated them to vote for? Yes, they are free to vote for whomever they choose, so long as state law allows it. But I suspect that after this ruling, we're going to see more states passing laws telling mm. electors you have to vote for the winner of the, of the statewide vote. Because, you know, this has just not been an issue for most of history. Like, we've only had a handful of... Nothing has. Electors. Donald Trump That's has true. not been an issue for most of history, Mark. Everything that has changed. That is very true. So. That is very true. But faithless electors, you know, they are not a big feature right. of... U.S. history. They're kind of a novelty item. And maybe now that they are on more states' radars, this will become a kind of universal thing across the country. You also note that uh, in her ruling, uh, Kagan, in her opinion, Kagan also wrote that states cannot impose new requirements on presidential candidates. For example, that would mean that states probably can't force a presidential candidate to release his tax returns in order to appear on the ballot. Why was that finding included in, in this particular opinion? Um, You know, I think this was another example of a justice writing one opinion, but looking ahead and kind of planting planting the seeds for another opinion. Um, I think Justice Kagan realizes that some states are passing these laws that say a presidential candidate cannot appear on the ballot without releasing his tax returns. And I think she's kind of putting up a little flare saying, hey, guys, this goes too far. And even though I love the policy as an idea, I agree with her. I don't think we want to start getting into these kinds of rules where states impose all of these conditions on who gets to be on the ballot. That's actually traditionally been a tool of voter suppression, um, and I don't think it's something liberals should adopt. So she does kind of go out of her way to give a little wink to the side and say, cool your jets on the ballot stuff. Like, the people get to vote for president whether or not he releases his tax returns. Well, again, that's good. That's one bit of chaos we may be able to avoid. Uh, Maybe one bit of voter suppression we may be able to avoid. But looks like there's a whole lot of voter suppression ahead. And uh, the Republicans, at least on the Supreme Court, seem to be all in favor of it. Let me take a quick break. We'll come back with Mark Joseph Stern to discuss basically one federal court ruling after another over this past week or two that should make all of us be very concerned about, yes, the chaos that could happen uh, this November 3rd at the polling place. Take a quick break, and we're back with more Mark for much more right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. 
We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Mark Joseph Stern over at Slate this week writes, In a dizzying succession of rulings, courts are laying the groundwork for a chaotic election day. One appeals court allowed Wisconsin to reinstate its dramatic cutback on early voting in a startling opinion that explicitly authorizes lawmakers to manipulate election laws for partisan gain. Another appeals court blocked a lower court decision that protected indigent ex-felons ability to vote in Florida. The Supreme Court also delivered a one-two punch, first allowing Texas to impose discriminatory limits on mail-in voting, then reversing a decision that eased voting restrictions in Alabama due to the pandemic. Taken together, Mark writes, these moves indicate that a growing number of federal judges and five justices on the U.S. Supreme Court have simply abdicated their responsibility to safeguard voting rights. This election was already a fraught battle over the future of American democracy, he writes. Now courts are retreating from the fight, leaving voters to fend for themselves. Boy, Mark Joseph Stern, nothing but good news in uh, in that piece today as one state <laughs> after another. I mean, uh, this is we've seen this over the past two weeks, and I want to hit uh, some of these cases. I think we talked about the uh, Texas case last week uh, when, when you were on the show, when the uh, Supremes blocked a uh, suit to allow all voters, not just those over 65 years of age, um, to vote absentee due to fear of contracting the coronavirus at the polls. Texas said, nope, you can't do that. They blocked that measure largely without comment. And since then, we've seen similar moves in at least three separate states, Wisconsin, Florida, Alabama, all pretty much doing the same thing, blocking lower federal court rulings that would have made it easier to vote, particularly this November amid the COVID pandemic. What is going on here, Mark Joseph Stern? Well, it's just awful, obviously, and I fear what's happening uh, is that we have not had a presidential election with a staunchly, staunchly conservative Supreme Court for many, many years. It really has been some time since we've had five Supreme Court justices who simply don't seem to believe in the constitutional right to vote. And so no matter how uh, persuasive these plaintiffs may be in proving that they're facing voter suppression, and even if some lower court judges side with them and explain why in a coherent uh, and, and uh, robust manner, mm-hmm. these five justices just act as a kind of buzzsaw for voting rights. And any time there's a, a ruling that helps people vote, those five justices step in and say, nope, we're chopping that down. And what's happened is that some of the lower courts that Donald Trump has flipped are seeing what these SCOTUS justices are doing, and they're taking a page from their book. And they're saying, well, if these justices are going to block voting rights, then we're going to do so as well, because we know where the smart money is. Yes. 
And that is an incredibly disturbing thing to see in the months before a presidential election. Yeah, it is. I mean, in Texas, the notion that uh, it is not enough to fear coronavirus. Uh, if you're not 65 and older, you can't use that as an excuse to vote in Texas, despite the fact, you know, despite the fact that you cannot get an ICU bed right now in Texas because the pandemic is so bad right now. And and Supreme Court said, we don't care. Well, they said something similar in Alabama, where you had uh, the Supreme Court blocking a measure to ease restrictions on voting, again, because of the pandemic. It would have allowed for curbside voting, for example, so you didn't have to go into the crowded polling place. It waived the need for two witnesses to have to sign on to an absentee ballot. A lower court said that would be just fine. That is reasonable. And the Supreme said, nope, sorry, can't do that. It's too late before an election to, to make that change in rules. Yeah, it, the Supreme Court, I mean, it didn't explain its reasoning because the conservatives didn't even feel like they owed us that. But the five, the five conservative justices stepped in and blocked this very straightforward and narrow ruling that would have made it easier for elderly and immunocompromised people to vote and would have allowed curbside voting in districts that wanted it. So people could vote from their cars. Uh, that does not present any kind of risk. It, it obviously diminishes the risk of getting the coronavirus. And yet the Supreme Court jumps in and says, we're not going to allow that. And what I find to be so offensive about this, beyond the, you know, just the, the impact of it, mm-hmm. is that the lower court judge here did such a terrific job collecting facts, figuring out how Alabama law worked, Mm -hmm. tailoring this decision to really kind of narrowly target the people who would be most affected by this pandemic. And and actually, this judge did such a good job that a ultra-conservative Trump appointee on the appeals court sided with that with that judge and said, okay, we're going to keep this injunction through the election. Mm-hmm. An ultra-conservative Trump judge thought this was okay, but five justices on the Supreme Court didn't, and they didn't even bother to explain why. After lower court judges had written more than 100 pages about this, the five conservatives couldn't even stoop to tell us why Alabamans didn't deserve voting rights. Uh, this is just a court out of control when it comes to the right to vote. Again, we are looking at a court that does not seem to believe in universal suffrage. This is exceedingly troubling because, again, it's not just Texas. It's not just Alabama. You note that we're seeing this spread out to uh, to to other uh, states as well. Lower courts, federal uh, uh, federal judges, federal appeals courts in Florida, for example, we thought we had some really good news. A week or two ago, where a federal judge had determined that uh, the Republican legislatures, their attempt to undercut Amendment 4 on the state ballot, which was adopted bipartisan effort, 65 percent of the vote uh, of the people in uh, 2018, I believe it was, to restore voting rights to former felons. Well, the Republican legislature in Florida undercut that measure by uh, passing a a law that would require former felons to pay all fines and fees, even though it was impossible for many of them to even know what they owed because the state does not keep a, a, a database. So they don't even know. And a lot of them don't have the money to do so. It was found to be after a trial, uh, a, a very thorough uh, ruling by a federal judge to be unconstitutional, to amount to a poll tax. And 
everyone celebrated because it looked like finally uh, the right to vote would be restored to former felons in uh, Florida, one of the last states in the nation to disallow it. But last week, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals shocked everyone by staying the lower court uh, order pending an appeal, which means it likely won't be heard until after the November election. Why? On what basis did they do that, Mark? Well, once again, the conservatives on this court, which Trump recently flipped, didn't didn't stoop to explain themselves. They didn't think we deserved an explanation. Uh, but I think we can figure out why they did it. And the answer is actually really shady and, and quite distressing. Uh, basically, it, it, last time this case came around to the 11th Circuit, it landed on a pretty liberal three-judge panel, mm-hmm. right? And the three-judge panel said, yes, we're going to uphold... Uh, this judge's decision. It's very thoughtful. People have to be able to vote if they're poor. You can't condition the right to vote on on wealth. Um, And this time around, the conservative judges on the court decided, you know what, we're not going to bother with the usual procedure here. We're not going to let this go to a three-judge panel and risk having Clinton appointees or Obama appointees on the panel. We're going to take it as a full court which happens in maybe 0.001% of cases, Mm. take it as a full court immediately and then sit on it for who knows how many months, quite possibly through the November election, so that we can ensure that this awful, awful law stays in effect through November. This is shady business. This is really kind of dirty stuff that federal judges should not be engaging in ever. And so this means, I mean, do you have any reason to believe that this will be heard in time uh, for the presidential election? I mean, we're not even four months away at this point. You got a million and a half uh, former felons who would otherwise have the right to uh, register to vote and participate in the November election. It, it seems like this has killed that idea, period, for the 2020 election. Am I wrong? Yeah, I, I think that's quite true. I, I only see a little, a little dash of hope uh, that maybe somehow John Roberts comes to his senses if the plaintiffs push this to the Supreme Court and draws the line somewhere. Because if there's anywhere to draw the line. It has to be here. I mean, this state has put 1.5 million people at threat of prosecution and imprisonment for registering to vote without paying fines that they can't afford, and they don't even know how much they are. I mean, this is an outrageous scheme. This really does harken back to Jim Crow-style suppression laws that pretend to be neutral, that pretend to be universal, but are very much gerrymandered to suppress certain people's votes. One out of every five black people in Florida is affected by this case. Um, And yet the 11th Circuit has decided to just spin its wheels until the election. I'm pretty much speechless. When I first heard this came out, I was shocked that the court would reach this far. This is an aggressively hostile decision. And if we're counting on John Roberts to be the one to draw the line, uh, (laughs) we're maybe in uh, quite a bit of trouble. He, by the way, so uh, you have the uh, uh, plaintiffs here challenged the idea? Are they trying to skip over the 11th Circuit at this point and and, uh, reach for a lifeline to the Supreme Court to say, help us out because this is ridiculous? 
I suspect that they will. Uh, I suspect they'll file an emergency petition and say, please keep, keep this lower court decision uh, in effect at least until we get a hearing in the 11th Circuit. Uh, but the truth is that this Supreme Court only grants emergency hearings and, and decisions to the Trump administration when it wants to enforce yeah. some kind of horrible immigration law. <laughs> it's not going to do it for a ragtag group of mostly minority voters who just want access to the ballot. So that's bad news in Texas, Alabama, Florida. I've only got a minute or so left. I will let you deliver your um, <laughs> your best shot to Judge Frank Easterbrook in Wisconsin after this uh, case. Well, I'll let you explain it. It, it. Three years it took to get a ruling in this case that comes out just months before the presidential election in 2020. Yep. Terrible decision here that allows Wisconsin to uh, cut back early voting all across the state from up to six weeks down to two weeks in a way that was very much targeting uh, black and Latino communities, particularly in Milwaukee. The Republican legislature came in and basically said, Milwaukee, we don't like how many minorities you're allowing to vote early, so we're going to stop it. Uh, And what's truly astounding about Frank Easterbrook's opinion is that he announces this principle that is not actually the law, that legislatures are perfectly free to suppress voting rights so long as they're doing so on the basis of partisanship and not race. So Republicans can actually manipulate election laws, and so long as they are only doing it to hurt Democrats and not black people, it's totally constitutional. Mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. And of course, this is Frank Easterbrook, the federal judge who said that photo ID restrictions were fine because you're required to uh, show one to get onto a plane, after all. A, getting on a plane is a privilege, not a right. And B, you don't need a photo ID to get onto a goddamn airplane, Judge Easterbrook. Yep. He fills this with similarly dubious facts and assertions. He is just phoning it in at this stage, and I think we all know why he waited three years to hand down this opinion in the July before an election. Mark Joseph Stern ends his article on all of this by saying, the message of these decisions is clear. Federal courts will not preserve Americans' right to vote in a free and fair election. The federal judiciary is leaving voters at the mercy of state lawmakers who are hell-bent on stopping certain citizens from participating in democracy. It's going to be a hell of a hell of a next four months or so. Mark Joseph Stern, really appreciate your, as ever, uh, all of your insight on all of these cases. I think we have some more. There's still some more ahead, right, on the Supreme Court? Yo, yep, we've got a handful left, and we will see if the court breaks our democracy before the end of the term. Oh, it won't be for lack of trying. Mark Joseph <laughs> Stern can be found over at Slate.com and on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Hopefully we'll talk to you next week about uh, whatever uh, is coming from SCOTUS. Uh, buckle up. Thank you, brother. Always a pleasure. Okay, quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen in the Green News Report. Yay! With uh, <laughs> some, actually, some more news from the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, yeah. and I think some better news in that regard. Yes. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yes, you will. Welcome back <laughs> to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, starting to get hot out here in uh, Southern California. I don't know how the rest of the uh, rest of the country has been. Uh, have we seen heat waves so far this summer across the U.S.? Oh, hell yeah. Uh, ask anybody up in Maine and the far northeast. Yeah. They had a massive, terrible heat wave recently. And yeah, there's going to be more of that. So, And so we are up. on track once again for another record year of heat. Oh, indeed. Okay, so uh, we got that good news out of the way. <laughs> uh, but actually, I think we have some better news. Uh, not a lot, but some better news in our latest Green News Report. The only purpose this pipeline ultimately will serve is to boost the profits of its developers. Big and bad news for pipelines. Good news for those who oppose them. Japan reeling from another round of record rains and catastrophic floods. Plus, we have a plan for building... The 100% clean energy economy. House Democrats unveil comprehensive climate proposal to reach net zero emissions by 2050. No net? No net. All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Flushing the toilet may fling coronavirus aerosols all over. Our toilets have turned on us. Though I can't say I'm surprised after all we've done to them. Seems only fair. This is your Green News Report. It was only a matter of time before they rose up to exact their revenge. Okay, Desi Doyen, uh, after years and years of protests and struggles, we got a whole bunch of good news about pipelines all in one day. Yes, but we'll get to that in a moment. First, Tease. Japan is reeling again from another round of record-breaking torrential rainfall over the weekend that triggered widespread deadly floods and mudslides that have killed at least 34 people on the island of Kyushu. Japan has been repeatedly battered by devastating extreme storms in recent years that have killed hundreds of people. Climate scientists say the storms have been intensified due to man-made global warming. In politics, we are releasing a transformative roadmap for solving the climate crisis. House Democrats, right before the July 4th holiday, unveiled a sweeping plan for climate action and economic recovery by establishing the groundwork for steering the country to net zero emissions by 2050 with a focus on environmental and racial justice. The 547-page proposal outlines (laughs) targets and policy mechanisms for establishing a price on carbon emissions and eliminating carbon pollution from cars by 2030 and from power plants by 2040. It embraces much of the Green New Deal without actually calling it a Green New Deal. Mm. It won't pass the Republican-controlled Senate today, but the proposal shows voters what Democrats plan to do on climate change. Good idea. Although, better idea, don't release the plan right before the 4th of July when no one's paying attention. Good point. 
Meanwhile, a pipeline palooza of bad news. Bad news? Well, bad news for the pipelines. Okay. First up, the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday refused a bid by the Trump administration to jumpstart construction on the controversial Keystone XL tar sands pipeline from Canada. The court kept in place a lower court ruling that blocked the use of a key federal fast-track water permit. But only for the Keystone XL, not for other pipelines they will be allowed to proceed while environmental reviews are underway. But the Supreme Court said no, essentially, for now, to Donald Trump on Keystone XL? Yes. That's good news, not bad news. Right. The court's rejection means that almost all Keystone XL construction is delayed until at least 2021. Sad trombone. The controversial Atlantic Coast Pipeline, an $8 billion fracked gas project, is now kaput after two of the nation's largest utilities announced they are abandoning the project due to increased regulatory scrutiny and delays that ballooned costs and hampered the project's profitability. The stunning cancellation from Dominion Energy and Duke Energy comes just weeks after the U.S. Supreme Court cleared the way for the pipeline to cross underneath the iconic Appalachian Trail. Nobody wants pipelines. So sad. But there is a twist. In a separate deal, billionaire investor Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has purchased all of Dominion Energy's natural gas pipeline and storage assets. If approved, Berkshire Hathaway will then control nearly 20% of the nation's interstate natural gas transmission, which would be an incentive to lobby against climate legislation. Buffett. And finally, in North Dakota, the biggest pipeline news of all today, a federal judge has ordered the controversial Dakota Access Pipeline to be shut down and emptied wow. completely wow. until the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers completes a more in-depth environmental impact assessment. This is a huge victory for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, which has fought the Dakota Access Pipeline since it was first proposed, calling it an unacceptable threat to their drinking water supplies and sacred cultural sites. Anti-pipeline protesters were met with violent crackdowns from state officials. Back in March, after a preliminary ruling by the judge, the attorney for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, Jan Hasselman of Earth Justice, told the Green News Report, This is a huge victory for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and all the people who have supported them over the years. The risks of an oil spill are too great that the consequences on the Standing Rock are too significant, and this needs to be studied really carefully and in a transparent way. Important to remember that this is a temporary victory. It's not over yet, but the party may be over for pipelines. They are, of course, going to appeal this decision, but this is exactly what the Standing Rock Sioux had said. There was no proper environmental study done. Now, maybe... It will be. Maybe. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.pradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Call it a night. The part is over. And tomorrow starts the same old thing. Yeah, 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 it does. Indeed. So, you know, we'll see if, in fact, the party is over for the uh, oil and gas industry and the pipeline industry. We will see. A lot of that, again, comes back to what happens this November. Remember that uh, Dakota Access Pipeline was actually canceled, nixed by Obama. Correct. And then Trump came in and turned it around, and the same with the uh, Keystone XL Pipeline. All I will say is elections have consequences. Well said. 
Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That service is made available by those of you who help us stay on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. You can make a one-time donation of any amount you like or a, a monthly subscription. It is all appreciated. Thank you in advance. All right, drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at the Bradblog. Until you find me here next time tomorrow, I hope you will join us. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.